book of Revelation, chapter 14. One of the beautiful things about this book is as much as I love the last chapter, the next chapter is even better. It just builds and builds in this glorious uh, truth of our union and identity here as those who stand with Christ and all the saints past, present, and future. Those whose lives are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 140,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Years ago, ten years ago, more or less, uh, my family and I took a trip out west. Sixteen days, 7,600 miles. We drove in our white van a lot less new than it was then, listening to great Americana music on the radio while the kids watched cartoons on an iPad that we had strapped to the ceiling of the van. Our longest day was almost 16 hours of driving, a lot of driving. It's a beautiful country. If you've never taken an out west trip, don't fly, drive. There's beauty everywhere. One of my favorite places was Yosemite. Yosemite is the size of Rhode Island. <laughs> it took us an hour and a half while driving somewhat over the speed limit of the park to get just through uh, the width of it, and it is almost twice as tall as it is wide. It's a beautiful place. You could spend your whole life exploring that park. Well, one day while we were at Yosemite, we decided to go to see one of the waterfalls. We all get out of the van. Everyone is distracted. There's a beautiful river that's running down next to this pathway. There's a ton of people, and as my wife and I are walking, and we're keeping up with our children, at this point, Ellie had not been born. Logan was an infant. And I look at my wife, and I go, where's Henry? My initial reaction was immense fear and, strangely enough, anger. Anger that my son would have the audacity to run off, which is probably not a great first reaction. Uh, I should have been an angry, obviously, and upset at myself that I lost my child. Well, Henry had the wherewithal to run back to the van and then to begin to plead with help 
to find his mom and dad. He missed me more than I missed him in that particular instance, and he was probably more terrified than I was. I had lost my child for a time. We were reunited. There was much tears and rejoicing and relief, and we continued to explore the park and played in the creek. When we look at Revelation chapter 14, we find the same number mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, that is the first time that we are introduced to the number of those who are called the 144,000. Now, if this were a Sunday school lesson, I would ask you all a question, testing your memory. Who are the 144,000? They are those who bear the name of the Father. They are those on earth who are the elect. It is that fixed, peculiar number chosen by God, the first person, the Father of the Godhead, who has, from eternity past, designated out of his love and electing purposes a peculiar people for himself. But then in Revelation chapter 14, we find that number mentioned again. But they are not upon the earth sealed for glory. By contrast, those who will be lost in judgment. But here they are with Christ standing upon Mount Zion. Heaven itself. That place where the throne of Christ is set up. And they are gathered around the Lamb and they are singing a song that only they can sing given to them by their Redeemer as those who have been redeemed. This morning, I want us to take some time to look at this glorious scene of those for whom Christ died, not one of them lost, whom the Father gave to the Son as a gift, as a Father's gift to His beloved Son every single one chosen by the Father, given to the Son, purchased by his precious blood, not one lost. And this should be of extraordinary significance in days like today where there is much fear that grips the Western world, the modern world, of much convenience, of much strength and power, and yet is brought to its knees by even the smallest of things. We do not fear, for our lives are hidden in Christ. Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, 144,000 here and there. 144,000 here and there. And then second, what the name brings. What the name brings. Let's look at the first point. 144,000 here and there. Now, before we open that up a little bit more, I want you to just look at where they are standing. Then I looked, John, the writer, and behold a lamb. This is, of course, Christ the Lord standing upon Mount Zion. This is the heavenly city of God, that place lofty in elevation, that place where the saints of God in heaven are gathered for worship around the throne of the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Worship is all about location. It is about location, location, location. 
And as much as the session of Reformation OPC wants you here on Sunday to worship, we want you here because our gathering together is an expression ultimately of our holy Catholic assembly of all the saints of every tribe, tongue, and nation in heaven and on earth, past, present, and future. When we gather for worship here today, it is an expression of our inviolable, unchangeable, unassailable union and presence and fellowship with Christ Almighty. These here are the saints from every age gathered together. Now you may say, how is that possible? Because our union with Christ Jesus, that not only theologically undergirds the order of salvation, that is, to be called, to be justified, to be sanctified, to be glorified, all of that work of salvation that God does in the individual person is built upon our once and eternal union with Christ Jesus. But not only your individual salvation, but our covenant fellowship together is built upon this eternal, unchangeable, not bound by time and space reality that when we are redeemed on the moment of our new birth, we are spiritually united in such a way that we can say that while we are worshiping here and parents are doing the parenting in the pew and the kids are doing their thing, we are with God in glory forever. This is what it means to not be lost. The 144,000 that are sealed on earth in Revelation chapter 7 are the same number to the very last soul as those who were found in Revelation chapter 14. That once you are named by the Father... And in eternity past, the Father has given to the Son a gift, a gift of a bride. Christ has said, all whom the Father has given unto me, I will not lose a single one of them. How does he do this? <laughs> I could not keep up with my son for 30 seconds after we got out of the van. It is because I lack the sovereignty, the superintendence, the power, the strength to know, and not only to know, but to have purposes that are effectual that cannot be changed. And not only not be changed by you and your will, which will be, is succumbed to the will of the Father upon the occasion of his regenerating you, right? He changes our wills. But that the fact, or the fact that these 144,000 in chapter 14 are the same as we saw in Revelation chapter 7, what have we seen in Revelation 12 through 13? An enormous assault by Satan and those who serve him to steal from Christ those for whom he died. It isn't just on a good day you can keep up with your kids, right? In the house, you can lock the doors and keep them inside. You're never going to leave, right? And oftentimes, you know, those parents, helicopter parents, you know what a helicopter parent is? They're always hovering right over their children. They've never given any liberty whatsoever. They've never played in the creek way down in the neighbor's yard. They're always right there. It's the backpack with the monkey and the leash, you know what I mean? Except they're 17. <laughs> Sometimes you have to let go, mom and dad. There is a reality of warfare, of spiritual warfare, 
There is the dragon in Revelation 12, and then there is the land and the sea beast of Revelation chapter 13. This unholy trinity that has that have allied themselves against Christ and his church. And yet, despite all of this, despite all of this, it is the same number. I don't want you to miss the significance of this. In the time of the, Rever- uh, in the, time of the Reformation, as it was in many centuries past, and even today, there have been many who are martyred for the sake of the gospel. And there were times where the Roman church would take the bones of the reformers, those who simply wanted the scriptures translated into their own vulgar tongues. Jan Hus was one of them, and he was burned at the stake. Or there were others who were buried, and then they took the bones of the buried men, they exhumed the bones, and they burned the bones and scattered them over the waters. Why? To make it more difficult for Christ on the last day to raise them up. Do you think that's a challenge for him? It is right for us to go to those cemeteries where our loved ones who have gone on before us are buried. I remember visiting the the graves of my dead ancestors and even my older sister when I was a kid. Christ knows where she is. And not only that, but in an even greater way, not only ought to know all you are you ought to know where the, the great men and women who have gone before us are buried, especially those family members, but an even greater reality is this that Christ knows. Christ knows. He knows who are his. And the great Reality, the blessed scene of Revelation chapter 14 says specifically about this number really two things that I don't want you to ever forget. The first, that the elect on earth are the elect in heaven. This wretched Pelagian doctrine that you can lose grace once it has rightly been given, that you can lose true saving faith, is not a biblical doctrine. And it is certainly not supported or found in Revelation chapter 14. That you and I are what we are here on earth because God has made us so. Because the Father, when he writes his name on you, does so with indelible ink. And it cannot be smudged away, it cannot be erased. You yourself cannot wipe it away. For the elect on earth are the elect in heaven. We are one holy Catholic church. This is why when people in the creeds wipe out the uh, the name Catholic because they think it's too confusing, and they put what? Universal. Those two words don't mean the same thing. Universal means broad. It's a two-dimensional representation of something that is three-dimensional, really, in its meaning. The Catholic church is the invisible church. It is the whole company of all the saints, past, present, and future, militant and triumphant, that is, those who are on the earth fighting the good fight and those who have gone on to be with the Lord forever. Think about that. That the saints who once worshipped here, who have gone on, have not ceased worshipping with us. 
They just do it better than we do, frankly, right? <laughs> they're always on time, and they're never distracted. That's what we're going for, guys. Worship now like you will when you're dead. In heaven. It's one holy Catholic church. And not only that, but the elect on earth are even now gathered around the throne in some mystical, spiritual way. You are here present. But in our union with God, even now, we are present around the throne worshiping Christ. How could you forsake such a glorious thing? What else is there like that? What other occasion, what other event promises a blessed audience with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? In fact, the great litmus test that indicates a failing evangelical church in this country is a lack of desire to gather in worship. And to think that you can gather in your pajamas. Listen, in the days of the lockdown, there were churches that were doing virtual communion. Right? Right click to eat the bread. That's what I'm talking about. That kind of nonsense. A kind of Gnostic rejection of the great spiritual reality of our union with Christ. That though we are even now present here, we are by Christ's saving grace and the electing mercy of the Father gathered around the throne. The 144,000 doesn't change. And that is despite all the efforts of the wicked. And in fact, Psalm chapter 2. I read that psalm this week in our session meeting to open as a devotional. In Psalm chapter 2, we read of the great conflict between the nations. Or really, the people of God and the nations of men. If you want to turn there, that would be great. I'm going to read from Psalm chapter 2. Y'all know this psalm. It is the battle cry of post-millennialism, if I can put it that way. And in this psalm, we read, in the beginning, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Well, what are they plotting? And if you say that the kings of earth don't actually have a centralized, unified plot, that is unbiblical. Because any nation who seeks to disrupt and interrupt and thwart the building of the work of Christ and his church and the manifestation of Christendom on earth are united by one central actor, and that is Satan himself. And the reason they take counsel together is because Christ is the king that shatters all kingdoms under his feet. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Boy, this could quickly become a sermon on Psalm 2. So you have all of these nations, these evil kings, the Neros, the Maos, the Stalins, and other current day leaders who seek to suppress the worship of the church. And it is against the Lord. Look at verse 2. 
But then the pronoun, pronouns mean something, by the way. Verse 3, it changes. There. Who is there? The earthly representation of the lordship of Christ Jesus on earth. The church. The saints. Let us, therefore, go after the Lord by go after, going after his people. But then what do we read of God the Father? He sits in heaven and he laughs. He laughs at the nations and the kings who plot against Christ and his church. And this is what he says. I have my king. And I have put my son upon the throne. And because Christ is upon the throne of heaven and earth, all you puny kings can do all the plotting you want, but you will never break the bonds of peace of the church. And because the father has said of the son, you are my son, you are my begotten son, I will give to you all of the nations. That those who plotted against Christ... Their titles and their lands will be stripped from them and they will be given to Christ and to the saints. That's our inheritance. The nations of the earth. And it is because Christ is upon the throne. And so then there is a warning. You nations of earth know that Christ is upon the throne. That you who judge right and wrong, you judges, verse 10, You should serve the Lord with fear. High and low, rich and poor, powerful or impotent, whatever kind of person you may be, all should be aligning themselves with the king upon the throne of heaven and earth. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah's triumph and his rule and his reign. That is why the number in Revelation 7 is the same as the number in Revelation chapter 14. Because when Satan comes, as he did in the Gospels, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan asked for you. And I said, no. No. He asked to sift you. Why did Satan want Peter? Because he doesn't want God to have any of you. He wants all of you. And not so that he can build some glorious kingdom with you and utilize whatever gifts you have. He wants to kill you. He wants to eat you. He wants to put you in hell and to be just as miserable as he is. This is all Satan wishes, is to see the kingdom of Christ emptied of its citizens. And John says, I've seen you. I've seen you there. And the same number on earth is the same in heaven. And that should give to you and me not just warm fuzzies, But when we go out into the world and the world says, I'm going to burn you at the stake. I'm going to cut you into pieces. Okay, but I still am there. What are you going to do to me? What can you do to me? This glimpse of the gathered union in Christ Jesus is the very thing that takes us through the battle. It is a glimpse of our victory prior even to our fighting. This is why the book of Revelation should be for us so encouraging in times where it seems as though our side is losing. Second point. What does the name bring? What the name brings? What we see in this 
As we look at Revelation 12, 13, and 14 is this principle. You are named for someone. That these two groups of people, those who bear the name of the mark of the beast, the 666, those who bow the knee to the dragon himself and his underlings like Nero, there are those who are named for the beast and then there are those who are named by the father. Every person you've ever met has a name. You will even meet people who, though spiritual union, have a name. That name has not yet been manifested to them. Those who have not yet been converted, who have been chosen and set aside, but in this life have not yet been redeemed. What the preaching of God's word and the ministry of the church does is it reveals the name. It reveals your name. And it reveals the name that the nations wear. And there are times, even in the church, where through the faithful preaching ministry, the ministry of sacrament and church discipline, there are those who, though it appears their name says Father, or in Christ, Christian, they in fact bear the name of the serpent. Ones like Cain. And those who were raised in God-fearing homes even. Even pastors, religious leaders who couch morality in biblical terms, but they call people within the church to fall away from following the Redeemer. They're there. In fact, those are the most insidious and dangerous ones. And so we see this scene, and he hears a loud voice, verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, that is, of God himself. And I heard the sounds of harpists playing their harps, and they sang, as it were, a new song. Here we find the 144,000 singing. They're singing. In fact, in every epic event In Christian history, in the history of the church and with Christ, there is always singing. Always singing. We are a singing people. Not a sung to people. A singing people. A people who compose and produce music about something that is particularly relevant to our, I hate this term, lived experience, but it it helps. It fits here. To what we have known and seen and heard. And what we see is that those who are named by the Father through the Son are gathered here singing before the throne to the one who redeemed them. And what are they singing? Where they are singing a song that here says, verse 3. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000. Now, um, that's an interesting phrase. And in one of the commentaries I've I've, uh, I've been working through, uh, the commentator David Clark says this, that no one could learn their song was doubtless because it was the song of redemption. 
The angels might look with admiration and wonder on the work of redemption, but they have no experience of it. When John says that it cannot be learned, what he is saying is only these can sing it. That it must be taught to them even as they are made new because it is the song of redemption. What that means is you can be in church and you can be singing and not singing. Do you catch my drift? Your mouth can move, you can make noise, but it is only the elect who are able to present to the Lord a song concerning redemption. It issues forth from a redeemed heart. The reason why angels cannot sing it is because they are not the object of redemption. They are not those who bear, like men, the image of God for whom Christ came and died. The reason they sing this song is because they are the saved, the delivered. And is a new song because Christ has taken the throne somewhat recently. And not only do they sing a song that cannot be learned, these who are redeemed, but they sing it as those who are spiritually undefiled. More interesting language. Verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, John does not mean here unmarried, right? All you folks that went ahead and decided to get married too bad, you're not elect, you're done, sorry. This is not a proof text for celibacy. This is a proof text, or it is a description of what is given to those who are named by the Father. If we are named by the Father then in Christ Jesus, we are covenantally, spiritually holy. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the language of we are dressed in the white priestly garments, having our garments washed by the blood of Christ Jesus. And not only that, but it also is evocative of the language that will come, of the, revela- uh, of the revelation of the virgin later in Revelation chapter, I think, 19, verse 7. And then, of course, it is in contrast to the harlot. The harlot that comes and makes men impure. This is covenantal union language. This is the language of the two parties. There are those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. Those who are bound to him by his blood and those who are rejected by him because they have not Kiss the sun, as we read in Psalm chapter 2. And so in Revelation 12 and 13, there are those who are utterly and completely defiled by a commitment to the serpent's purposes on earth to bring about the destruction of the young church. And many were defiled through the enticements and threats of the dragon through his two beasts, Rome and the Jewish priests of the day. They were fearful in the face of threats or they liked the false teaching of those who taught on behalf of the state. They were defiled because they allowed themselves to bear the mark of Nero on their foreheads. That is one people. But the people of Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 through 5 are a people who are completely and wholly undefiled. This is what Psalm 103 looks like. As far as the east is from the west, so far are your transgressions removed from you. That is what it looks like. That before the throne, 
having been elected by the Father, given to the Son, his blood cleansing you from all of your sins, and the Spirit coming, and having been justified, we are wholly reconciled, and before God, in worship, we are completely and utterly holy. That is one of the reasons we are there, and can be there, and are privileged to be there, here in Revelation 14. Because we have been forgiven. That is why they sing. They have a reason. And that reason is through Christ Jesus, they are made completely whole. Utterly forgiven. Not one sin remains. They are spotless. They are pure. They are innocent. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This is the great mark of the elect, isn't it? In any time in the prophets where there is an encounter between God and a prophet, there is a gift of holiness and then there is a statement of commitment like we see in Isaiah. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Whatever you tell me to say, I'll say. This is the quality of those who are redeemed by Christ. We follow the Lamb wherever he leads. Where does the Lamb lead us then? into the territories that the Father has given him. And what territories belong to the Lamb as we see in Psalm 2? Every square inch of this world. Every single square inch. What they sing is a song of purity, of holiness, of reconciliation, of willingness to go. Lord, here we are, send us. For they have been redeemed. And they are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouths there is no deceit, and they are without fault. In our worship on Sunday, not only are we often distracted, but oftentimes pastors make mistakes. Sometimes songs are sung that ought not be sung. Some of those songs have been wiped out of our hymnal. There should be maybe some more hymns that are wiped out. In fact, even in our own hymnal, I would argue that there's a reason why I've inserted this Lutheran hymn, Lord, Keep Us Steadfast. When this particular hymn was reworked and placed into our current hymnal, hopefully nobody from my denomination will hear this last part, (laughs) they removed a word from that hymn, an idea that I think is detrimental to the work of the church. They changed, defend thy Christendom to thy holy church. Those are not the same. The holy church is what? Christ's particular people on earth. What is Christendom? Everything that Christ lays hold of. The interests of the church go beyond the walls of this church and the walls of every other church. Our longing for the nations is that all, even as we confessed in Psalm 119, and even as we have sung, we should be crying. Our tears should pour forth, not simply because things are not going well here or wherever Christ's name is honored, but because there are those outside of this church whose lives are not lived for the glory and honor of God. Our longing as a congregation is to see the the fulfillment of the 144,000 that everyone might be named in such a way that they know for whom they are named. 
And so we pray what? Let Psalm 2 come true. Even it has been promised to the Son, Lord, make it true here on earth. Bind the power of Satan, right? When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we know what that prayer is about from Revelation chapter 12. When Satan is bound and he is thrown out of heaven, he is thrown to earth. And our labors and our prayers for this kingdom, that is earth, is what? That even as Christ has removed Satan from heaven, he would, through the ministry of the gospel preaching of the church, through the ministry and service of the saints, by word, prayer, and sacrament, leave no quarter for the kingdom of Satan here on earth. Just like a predator, a wolf comes amidst the sheep. What do the shepherds do? Oh, look at that sweet wolf. No. They take the sling. They take the stones. They take the bow. They take the arrow. And they slay the wolf. They kill. They guard. They protect. So that all those who are here on earth who are named by the Father, might come into the blessed fellowship of the Godhead and begin singing. It is a glorious song. For in Christ Jesus, we sing that song. In Christ Jesus, you are redeemed from spiritual promiscuity. In Christ, you are found without fault. And even as we come to the table this morning, we find the glory and the grace that is poured out through Christ Jesus. It is through Christ that his kingdom is built. It is through our song that the kingdom is built. And so bear these truths in your heart with trust and hope and joy. Bear it with pride in a world that wants you to reject him. Satan wants you. And he will come to tempt you with all manner of offerings. Remember to whom you belong. Parents, remember to whom your children belong. On the day of their baptism, Christ said, this child is mine. Remember that promise. Greater than the promises you make on that day. The promises that God makes on that day. And one day... We will all be gathered together. This will be a distant memory, will it not? And it will be testified to our very eyes. And we will make a noise so great that the mountains will shake. We will sing the song of the Lamb. May we sing it even today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God.